Today we're going to talk about experiencing the miracle, experiencing the miracle of Christmas again. And we've been in this series a couple of weeks, and today I want us to specifically look at the miracle of the method. Now you might say, that's kind of an odd title for a sermon, the miracle of the method. But I want us to see today that the way that God goes about doing things is really a miracle in and of itself. It's not just the things he does, but it's even the way that he goes about doing those things that is miraculous in and of itself. And so let's start looking at this. God's methods transcend us. God's methods transcends us. Now, I consider myself a fairly learned person. Uh, I do take IQ tests occasionally just to make myself feel better. I'm a little above average, but I'm never in the genius category. But I, you know, I can discuss many topics, including politics, philosophy, art, music, theology, other things. So I'm, I'm fairly learned. But I have to admit, there are many topics that I know virtually nothing about. I can't, I can't handle a conversation about cold fusion. I, I can't uh, talk with somebody about quantum physics. I don't know anything about neuroscience or how to change the brake pads in my car. I can't do any of those big, giant, enormous things that are huge for brainiacs. But when we consider God, folks, I think sometimes we look at what he does through the lens of our own understanding, which I think is a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake. Look what the Bible says about our understanding compared to God's understanding. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's methods are far beyond even our ability to understand. They're beyond our comprehension. Think about this. If you or I were writing down or deciding how God would save the world from their sins, at least for me, it would have been a whole lot more like Star Wars than it really was the biblical account, right? I mean, Jesus came as an innocent, defenseless little baby instead of a warrior. He was born to humble poor parents instead of movers and shakers he was born in a stable instead of a palace he was born in a very plain way to very normal plain people instead of with the fanfare and the pomp and circumstance that he was really entitled to but we shouldn't be surprised that God's methods are like this in fact he's been doing this really forever think about it in the Old Testament, he chose Joseph, the second youngest in his family, to be the savior of his family. Not the oldest, not the strongest. He chose uh, uh, Israel, perhaps the least significant nation at the time, to be his people. He chose David, this lowly shepherd boy, to become the king of Israel. 
He chose Bethlehem, this small little insignificant town, to be the birthplace for the Savior of the world and God's only Son. You see the pattern? You see the pattern? See, God chooses the insignificant and the plain, ordinary people to do extraordinary things for God. Jesus is born to a young couple in a barn where Jesus himself was placed into a feeding trough. And there weren't a bunch of wise men bringing gold and laying it at his feet. There were just some shepherd boys there to worship the king they had heard about. You see, if you or I would have ever written down the story or would have come up with the, with the story of how the God of the universe would have provided salvation to mankind through his son, it probably wouldn't have looked anything like what it does. Because God's methods are just so far beyond ours. We can't even understand them sometimes. But the cool thing is that God's methods and not only transcend us, but God's methods include people like us. So think about that. There's these young shepherd boys just watching their sheep, doing their job. And an angel appears to them and tells them to go and see this baby, which the angels told them about and would save the world. But when we see that, we, we recognize that we believe it's true, but the practice doesn't end there. You see, Jesus spent most of his life and his time with normal people like you and me. Even the majority of Jesus' followers were just normal, ordinary people. Think about it. There were no military generals, no political leaders, no, no big shakers and movers in the culture. Even the religious leaders became his enemies. He, he sat with, he talked with, he interacted with common, ordinary people like us. And then when he gave his life on the cross... There were no influential people there to stop it or to, to do anything about it. In fact, his own disciples had just run away from him except for John. And then when he rose from the dead, he didn't walk into the temple and prove to all the doubters and leaders who he was, although he could have. He showed himself to a handful of followers. Think about that. He could have, he could have after he rose from the dead, he could have walked into the temple and said, Hey guys, I'm here. Look, you killed me. Didn't work. What do we do now? I mean, he could have put on a big show there, but he didn't do that. He just met with a couple of ladies first at the tomb and a couple of disciples. And then he slowly showed himself to more and more people. And then he trusted his mission to go and make disciples of the entire world to ordinary people who had followed him. Fishermen tax collectors. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, you know, you might, I might sound a little bit insulting at first. Uh, okay, I'm the weak one. I'm the not so smart one. I'm all, okay, I got all that. 
But he's saying, look, you might not be the shaker and mover. You may not be what you think is the most influential person in the culture, in the community, but you are the people that God wants to use. See, God's methods call for ordinary people like you and me to be a part of God's plan. To first be saved from our sins and then become a cog in the process of making disciples of the entire world. You know, Jesus came in this humble way and he continues to use ordinary, humble people today to be part of his plan. His methods haven't changed. His methods haven't changed. And so we see a couple of things about the way that God does things. His methods transcend us. They're far beyond the way that we would plan them or do them. And then they also include people like us. But I want us to focus the rest of our time on this. And that is that God's methods both draw us and sanctify us. We need to understand this aspect of God's methods, of this this part of God's way that he deals with us and with the world. Just like God was involved in all of those specifics of Jesus' birth, he's also involved in trying to draw us to himself and then transforming us when we choose to connect to him. Just like we would write the coming of the Savior in a different way, we would probably write our own story in a very different way. I know that I would write my my story with a lot less pain, a lot less problems, a a whole lot less uh, bad people in my lives and bad influences. I'd rewrite my story altogether. But the reality is, when I look back at my story and how God has been working with me through history and working on me through history, he has been drawing me and then sanctifying me through thousands and thousands of circumstances. We may not even see how God has been or is working in our lives, but let's see what it is he desires to do with us. In 2 Peter 3.9, Scripture says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When people come to me and they say, Pastor Michael, I'm I'm going through a lot of decisions. I've got a lot of choices. I've got a lot of things to decide. How do I figure out God's will for me? Well, there's a lot of things that are very specific to you about where you go to school or, or what career you choose or who you marry, all these things that are specific to you that I may not be able to help you with as far as helping decide. But there are some things that I can specifically say are God's will for you. And one of them is this. God has been chasing you. And his desire is that at some point you just stop running and turn around and let him catch you. That's God's desire for everybody. That's God's desire for everybody. He sent his son to save us from our sins. And he allowed him to die for us. And the fact is, even today, God either was chasing us or is chasing us depending on where we are in our spiritual journey. See, when I think back to how I came to know uh, to be a Christian, and I think back to all the circumstances that had to take place, there were literally hundreds, maybe thousands of circumstances that all had to fall in line for me, for the community that I lived in, to have this big rally at the football field, to invite a former hell's angel to come and speak at it. He preached a sermon about how God sees all sin the same and all sin uh, uh, separates us from God. 
And as a 12-year-old boy, I heard this message, and I realized that he had done some really, 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 really bad things, but I'd been disobedient to my parents. I'd lied. I've cheated. I've hit my sister a lot. (laughs) And my sin separated me from God. Now, folks, when I look back on that, and I realize that somebody had to know this guy, Somebody had to invite this guy. Somebody had to pay this guy. Other people probably had to help pay this guy. When I look at all the circumstances that have to happen, and I really uh, look at it carefully, probably hundreds, if not thousands of things, all had to fall in line for me to be sitting there and listening to this man tell me that I needed Jesus to save me from my sins. See, God was chasing me. God was after me. He He was doing his best to grab onto me. Look what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, if you want to know what God wants, He wants everybody to stop running. He wants everybody that He's chasing, which is everybody, He wants them to stop running and turn around and let Him catch them. See, He loves you. And he's gone to great trouble to send his son and let him die and then get you to where you are today. If you think about all of those circumstances, just centered around uh, the birth of Jesus, hundreds of prophecies had to take place, had to be fulfilled And Jesus was born. Then Jesus lived this perfect life. Then he gave his life on the cross. All of those circumstances around that all had to fall in place. And it's all part of God's chase of you. Somehow, God got you here today. Maybe you're a member of this church. Maybe you you came, you thought you were coming to church today just to hear your, your child or your grandchild sing. But God may have been working these details out for weeks or months to get you here to hear this very thing. You see, God has got this this vast, unbelievable puzzle that he is working out in all of our lives individually and they all interact with each other. I mean, talk about ways being above our ways. I can't even multitask. I can't do three things at the same time. And God is working that out in all of our lives, all at the same time. This is his method, folks, to chase us down, to reach us somehow. God has been drawing us most of our lives. And then once we actually do stop running, we do turn around, we do let him catch us. We find out that he's not through with us. Now we are a part of his plan to reach others. Now we are part of his plan to make disciples of the whole world. And I want to just share this with you today, that there are three parts of our salvation. Because as we look at how God is dealing with us, it's important for us to understand, uh, there's some confusion sometimes of, if I did this then, what am I doing now? What am I doing later? How's all this work together? I want to share that with you of how that works. And this is all part of God's method for us. There are three parts of our salvation. And I hope I explained this well for you today. Let's look first at Romans chapter 6, verse 22, because in this verse are all three parts of our salvation. Here's what it says. It says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so we see here that there are three distinct parts of our salvation. 
Uh, and the first one is this, justification. Justification. If we look back at the verse, it's this first part. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, stop. That part right there is describing that moment in time that you stop running from God and you turn around and realize I am a sinner and I can do nothing to erase my sin. I must put my faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save me from my sins because that's the only hope that I have. In that moment, this word justification, and if you think about it this way, if you help, uh, kind of help you remember it, it means just as if I'd never sinned. We are declared righteous. We are declared perfect. Are we actually perfect? No, we'll talk about that in a minute. But in this part, in this very, and this is a moment in time, folks. This is a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And in that moment of time, you pass from death to life, from darkness to light, from eternal damnation into eternal glory with God. Your eternity is set. And that justification is 100% complete. Fact, once it takes place, not even you can change it. Not even you can change it. It cannot be changed because as the scripture said, it is held in the hand of Jesus and in the hand of the Father. It is not held in our hand. And so there is this thing called just, justification, which is I have been declared righteous. That happened to me when I was 12 years old. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus, in that moment, I was declared righteous before God. And I was fully and completely justified. But the second part of our salvation is the sanctification. If we go back to that verse, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, that's the justification, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Obviously, that's the sanctification part, right? Okay, what that means is, is and that's not something that happens in a moment of time, it's something that happens over a long period of time. It happens from the moment you are justified and you give your life to Jesus to the moment you die on this earth. We are going through a process of sanctification. What that means is we should be seeing the fruit, and if you look back at that verse again, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get from the justification leads to sanctification. In other words, it's a cause and effect relationship. If you are truly justified, if you really have given your life to Jesus, been born again, uh, been saved, all those terms that we use in that one moment, if that's truly happened, there will be fruit in your life that makes you become more like Jesus. We aren't there yet. We aren't perfected yet. But there should be growth. There should be a process. We should be more like Jesus now than the day that we uh, we're justified, unless it was this morning. Okay, so that's a process that describes this transformation of our behavior and our hearts and our minds into a better likeness of Jesus. And we'll never complete that process. We'll still continue to sin at times because we are, we are surrounded by our flesh. We are in this fleshly sinful body that wants to lead us away from God while our new spirit wants to lead us toward him. We will not achieve perfection until we experience glorification. That's the moment a follower of Jesus dies and receives a glorified body just like the risen Savior. And they're no longer susceptible to pain or problems or sin or earthly troubles. And so there's these three parts of our... And don't think of them as three, uh, uh, three parts of a whole, although they kind of are... Uh, 
Justification can take place at 100%, does take place at 100% when we give our lives to Jesus. Sanctification is a process that is ongoing. And then when we die, we will, we will be glorified. And so in, in some manner you could think, I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But it's important to understand, folks, that we're not working in order to gain something. We're being changed because it's the fruit of already gaining something. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And so I want you to think today, God either has been or is working in our lives to draw us to himself. He either were justified or he is chasing us now until we get justified. And if you're here today and you haven't made a decision yet to stop running from God and to simply stop and turn around and let him catch you. And that's, you know, it's just a word picture, meaning I'm going to repent for my sinful ways and for myself and doing my own thing, and I'm going to turn around and accept what God is offering to me. His love, his mercy, his grace, his hope. Knowing that he's not only going to save me, but he's going to then begin changing me. He's going to begin transforming me into a better reflection of Jesus, his son. See, God's gone to a lot of trouble to have you here today. Even, even just, let me just tell you this part, even just to get me to this spot today, God's, God's been working a long time in a lot of ways to make that happen so you could even be here to hear me today. I mean, when you think about all the ways that God has been dealing with your life, folks, I am just amazed at that. And the things that I go through now, I'm starting to realize as I uh, reach a more mature uh, place in my life, I, I look back and I see the things that I resented at the time, but now I look back and say, wow, that was God working. That was God doing something to get me somewhere. So now when I go through things that I think are challenging or difficult, I'm just like, okay, God's, God's working to get me somewhere. He's working to, to do something in my life. All these things don't happen to us just by some random chance, folks. God is working all around us. And he's working hard at getting us to either stop running and let him catch us, or he's now chasing us to become more like his son. He's trying to do things to encourage us, to help us, to, to just transform us. The question for us is, after God's gone to all this trouble, this kind of trouble, to send his son to this earth, to show us the fullness of salvation, how are we going to respond to God's efforts? How are we going to respond to God's initiation of chasing us and loving us and offering mercy and hope how are we going to respond to that? He's desperately seeking, as we saw in the scripture, he is desperately seeking because he loves us to connect with us and to change our lives. The question is, will we allow him to do that? See, God doesn't want a bunch of robots following him because love is not forced. Love can't be forced. Love is only offered. So God doesn't want to force us to love him and make us a bunch of little robots. He's here saying, listen, I love you enough to give my son 
to die for you, to come and be born in these humble means and to die for you, will you love me? It's offered. And he gives us an opportunity to offer love back. The question is, will we do that? I want to encourage you today, if you're here and you have never stopped and let God catch you, if you have never been justified by putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save you, please don't leave today without getting that settled. You can write on the back of one of your connection cards if you want us to follow up with you. Or you can talk to one of the pastors or, or, or one of the leaders here at Fellowship of Grace or just come talk to me after the service. Uh, just don't leave here until you get that right. Get that fixed, guys, today. God has gone to about as much trouble as he can go to without forcing you, and he doesn't want to cross that line. And for those of us who have been justified, who have already put our faith and trust in Jesus, God is now chasing us to encourage us to let him transform us. Let's let him catch us. Let's just decide that we're going we're gonna to be a part of his plan. We're going to work with his plan instead of against his plan. We're going to partner with him instead of against him. We're going to do his things instead of our things. You see, a five-year-old child wants a motorbike for Christmas. And no good, loving parent gives a five-year-old a motorbike to just have on their own. Why would we not do that? Because we know better, right? Listen, why does God want us to, to fit into his plan? Because he knows better. That's the whole purpose of his method. He is going about, uh, to a great deal of trouble to work all these circumstances out all around us to get us to fit into what he wants us to do. Not because he's trying to bully us, but because he says, I have a better way. I have a better plan than you could come up with. I couldn't have come up with this plan. You're going to give me a thousand tries. I wouldn't have come up with this plan. And neither would you. So I want to encourage you today. Just acknowledge that God's ways are better than ours. And join him on his plan for your life. Pray, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time of year that focuses us back on how much trouble you have gone to to love us. To offer us full and complete salvation through your son in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help each of us in our minds and our hearts to just turn to you. Stop running. Let you do what you want to do in our lives so that we can live meaningful lives, fulfilled lives, the lives that you really created us to live. Father, if there are those here today who certainly do not know you yet, I pray that you would encourage them to say something, to talk to somebody, and to give their lives to you before they leave here today. God, we are so thankful and so grateful that you love us so much to be involved in our lives. Thank you. Thank you for what you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.